Podcasting from the Star Group, home of the iconic Dressable Lions. This is Beyond the Known, the podcast that takes you a step beyond what you know about business. I'm your host, Paul M. Newberger, president of the Star Group. On today's episode of Beyond the Known, our guest is Ron Chandler, president of Summit Investment Management. Ron, wonderful to have you in the studio. Nice to be here, Paul. Yeah. So what's it like to be in Wisconsin now for a week after you're used to the beautiful San Diego weather? You might not believe this, but actually Sunday when I came in, it was warmer than it was in San Diego. The great myth is that people think Southern California is like being down in Florida. And honestly, it's not. The weather is more consistent. And so we get long stretches of days where the temperatures don't range very far from each other one day to the next but it's never really hot and it's never really cold so you know it's okay but i'm going to tell you there's still nothing like a wisconsin summer yeah any well, minute wisconsin spring i am certainly partial to that that's for sure but i have been told that the easiest job in all of humanity is to be a san diego weather person what's it going to be like today chuck nice back to you joe would be a nice gig to have. Anyway, wonderful to have you in Wisconsin. What a pleasant surprise it is to see you. Always good to spend some quality time with you, my brother. So let's talk a little bit about Summit Investment Management. So the financial services industry, one of the things that I've noticed about you for a while is you are crazy passionate about this field, which is it's hard not to get excited about something when you're around somebody as excited about it as you are. Where does your passion for financial services come from? Well, it started really at a young age. Back in the 60s, it was very important for somebody in the family to carry on the name. And so having two older sisters, when I was born, my grandfather actually bought some shares of the company that he worked for for me. At the time, it was called Warner Chilcott. And as I got older, he would take me downtown to the Fisher Building. I lived in Detroit and he showed me how to read a ticker tape and he would show me when my company went by and he would show me we were making money or losing money and so he started it with that and i always paid attention to the markets i paid attention i would you know when i could read i started reading the investor letters and you know paying attention to those things so it really always carried on from there. Even in my other businesses, I was always taking advantage of stock ownership. Uh, my first job was with a pharmaceutical company and I immediately signed up for their employee stock ownership program, which allowed us to buy shares without a brokerage commission or anything else. And it's just always been a major part of my life. So if somebody would have told you 30 years ago that you would be doing what you're doing today, would you have believed it? Be no, I'd be laughing. Yeah, because you've had quite a rich background. I mean, you've owned organizations, you've got executive experience in a variety of industries. So why don't you kind of tell us, how did you end up being in this field today? Well, when we sold automotive company, I was able to cash a pretty good check. And I was intimidated with the amount of money that I then had responsibility for. So I hired an investment professional and gave him that check and said, here, you know, I'm going to watch you, but you take care of it. And after two years, 
paying some obnoxious mutual fund load fees, my account hadn't gone anywhere. And during that time, I had come in contact with an organization that was focused on personal finance, personal freedom, personal liberty, wealth building, different different ideas that were not necessarily mainstream. And so the combination of the results that he was getting me, plus what I was learning and getting excited about, I took my account over and I told him, I said, you know, I can lose money just as easy as you can at, at a lower fee. So I just started investing for myself and I immersed myself in the business of investing. I read 50 books a year, every book on investing and technical analysis and fundamental analysis and value analysis, anything I could get my hands on. And that eventually parlayed into a gig with a financial education company where I was actually traveling the country, putting on seminars, teaching people technical analysis and how to trade the markets and options and derivatives and futures. So through those travels, people started coming up to me and saying, Hey, I'd, I'd like you to do for me what you're doing for yourself. So, you know, I kept putting that off and putting it off, but you know how you get that kind of, you know, a ping on the back of your neck that says you need to pay attention to this. So finally, when my oldest daughter was born, my wife and I decided that I didn't need to be spending so many years on the road and I should stay home and be there for her. So I uh, made the plunge and I went to work for a broker dealer with the idea of becoming a rep for them and getting into the industry. And that was fine other than the fact that their business model made me more of a salesman than an advisor. And anybody will tell you I'm a terrible salesman. It's not what I want to do. It's I don't like prospecting. I don't like cold calling. And I know I've read your book and I got the DVD and I still don't like it. I'm better at it, but I don't like it. So after about three years, we parted ways. And at that time, somebody that I was well connected with said, Hey, some investment management's for sale. Would you like to check it out? And so we did. And then in partnership with a couple of other people, we bought it. And that's how we got here. The difference between Summit and what I was doing before is that Summit is 100% independent. So we don't answer to Charles Schwab. We don't answer to Edward Jones. We don't answer to Raymond James. We answer to our clients. So we can do anything and everything to the benefit of our clients. And so we have the flexibility to, you know, create a business that, you know, we feel is serving people the way that we would want to be served. So help me understand this a little bit better. I have to imagine many people dream about receiving just this check with so many zeros they lose count, just a gigantic sum of money. You know, you got three wishes. What would you wish for? I'd love to hold a big, gigantic check. Well, you had that opportunity. And it's interesting. You talked about how that was intimidating, overwhelming, scary. Gosh darn it, Ron, give me that problem. I would love to sign up for that. But you're right, though, as an entrepreneur and a business owner, as much as you want that, sometimes when you are the dog that caught the proverbial car, now you've got these other decisions to make. Can you kind of walk us through why receiving such a big, gigantic check 
is scary, intimidating, overwhelming? And what are things that people should keep in mind if they find themselves in a situation like that? Well, it's interesting you say that because there's a lot of case studies about lottery winners who get those big checks and the ones that end up with nothing, you know, over a short period of time versus the ones who have, you know, parlayed it into something else. My father was a high school dropout. So we were lower middle class all of my life. I went to college because I was able to pay for college. So money was something that didn't come easy and didn't come readily. I did not grow up wealthy. So, you know, I was just watching checking accounts and savings accounts and the idea of a trust fund or, you know, something that is, you know, being taken care of was just very, very foreign to me. So even though, you know, within the business, we were paying ourselves, you know, reasonably well, the idea of this life-changing money coming in, you know, makes you sit back and think. Now, one of the things that has always been, I think, an advantage for me is that I've always been happy with less. I don't need a $200,000 car to make me happy. I don't need a $2 million house to make me happy. So when I got the big checks, I would not sit there and go down my wish list and start, you know, ticking off and, you know, creating a shopping list off of it. My thought was, okay, what do I do now to make sure that I take, you know, the best advantage of this gift? Part of it is using it to give back. And so, you know, I've, I've been involved with charities since, you know, my early 20s. And, you know, the opportunity to go and, and make a difference in people's lives was, you know, was a big part of it. But the other part of it was, how do I keep it, grow it, make it sustainable? I think that, you know, the, the idea of understanding that you don't know what you don't know is very, very powerful there. A lot of people can get a large check and they think they know what to do with it. I took the opposite approach. I was convinced I didn't know what to do with it. And therefore, I was very cautious and very slow. And then I proceeded carefully to learn and build up the knowledge and the wisdom and the skills to know what to do with it before I started you know, taking advantage of, of the blessings that I've been given. You're a very humble man, Brother Ron, so I will say this for you. You've been quite successful over the course of your career. You know a thing or two about business. You know a thing or two about investment. So this question might be asking you to like, you know, kind of choose between your children, as it were. But what was the best piece of investment advice you were ever given? It comes from my dad. And it was my graduation day when I graduated from the University of Michigan. He said, I have no idea what your degree is even about. And I have no idea what you're going to be doing in your job. But here's something I do know. You know, things are, you're going to have good days, you're going to have bad days. You're going to have good years, you're going to have bad years. So take your first check and calculate that out for a year. And then put together a lifestyle that you're satisfied with or comfortable with. And take the rest of it and start putting it away. And keep putting it away until you can live one year without a paycheck. He says, because knowing who you are, knowing what you've got, your degree and everything else, probably you'll never be unemployed for longer than a year. 
unless you want to be. So if you have a year's worth of living expenses saved up, then at any point in time, whether something bad happens or whether you decide to make a choice, you'll have it and you won't have to worry about where am I going to get it or how am I going to pay my bills or how am I going to do this or how am I going to do that. That is probably the most liberating moment in your life when you look at that savings account and you say, I could quit and I could go a year before I had to get another job. Because now with every extra dollar after that, I can now take a look at, okay, do I want to upgrade my lifestyle? Do I want to invest for my future? Do I want to give money to somebody that might need it more than I do? You've now got a whole world of decisions and you never have to worry about, okay, what if something goes bad or what if something goes wrong? You've already taken care of that. That's really good advice for sure. And to kind of take that to the next level, I'd really love it if you could throw a bucket of cold water on our audience. And what I mean by that is some people just have a hard time getting off their duff. They've got a hard time making this a priority. And you're probably more in line or have a better grasp of these statistics than I do. But I read the Wall Street Journal a couple times a week when I can. And Boy, some of these statistics are alarming, you know, where roughly 40% of people, if they have an unexpected expense of a thousand bucks, wouldn't be able to pay for it. Very few people, whatever the percentage is, would be able to retire and maintain any semblance of the lifestyle they have right now. What kind of statistics can you share? What kind of a picture can you paint for our audience that kind of says, hey, we got to get moving out there because people in savings, I mean, we're having issues as a society. What, what kind of advice or thoughts would you be able to share to kind of get people to make this a priority once and for all? Well, it's really hard. I mean, you know, there are a great number of studies. If you do any kind of a search on the internet, how many people can retire comfortably, how many people can pay their bills, you know, whatever. I mean, it gets pretty, pretty dire. The biggest you know, piece of advice I can give people is to understand that regardless of anybody's spoken word, nobody cares about you and your well-being more than you're going to. And nobody feels it's their obligation to take care of you. Sure, they'll, they'll tell you, you know, we'll be there, you know, vote for me, I'll set you free whatever the latest promise is. But at the end of the day, when you look in the mirror, you're looking at the one person who has the greatest ability to change your life. And if that person lets you down, you really have no excuses. Well said. I, yeah, we've seen many a promises from politicians, many a promises from business executives, whatever the case may be. And yeah, we're, we got to look out for ourselves. Not to say that we're selfish and narcissistic, but you can't expect somebody to do for you what we need to do for us. So I think that's well said. One of the things, Ron, that I really admire about you is you are a man of deep faith. Uh, your faith really is who you are. It's not just something you talk about. It's something that you live. You live it every day. You live it with your family. You live it amongst your clientele. And that is a breath of fresh air in a society that I would say desperately needs it. Can you talk to us a little bit about your faith journey? Has that always been important to you or did that kind of come about later in life? It was really a journey in a lot of different ways. One of the interesting things is that I was raised Roman Catholic and 
my father was somebody who was one of those live for the moment kind of people. So just before he went off to the war, which was World War II, he went and got married to somebody he'd been dating for about two weeks. As you can imagine, that didn't work out, you know, according to most of the statistics. And so uh, he ended up, while he was overseas, getting a divorce. Then he met my mother in, when he was stationed in Italy, and they got married. Now, my mother was very, very religious, and according to the Catholic doctrine at the time, you weren't allowed to marry a divorced person. So she would take us to church on Sunday. She would drop us off at the front of the church, you go home, and then after the service, she would pick us up, but she would not set foot in the church because she felt that, you know, she couldn't because of what she had done. So because of her, I always had a deep faith and a deep belief, but, you know, it was very, very hard to imagine that somebody who I looked up to, I was very, very close with my mother. She was just a, a wonderful, loving person, always there. How could she, you know, be not good? So, you know, I went through those struggles. I never, ever lost faith. But in the 1980s, right after I graduated college, I had another really, really tragic event happen to me. And that ended up being a string of events. So during the 1980s, over 11 people who were very, very close to me, including my mother, all passed away. And many of them passed away tragically. And so I started questioning, you know, what is this really about? So again, I never lost faith. I never stopped believing, you know, in a higher power. And in fact, those deaths actually strengthened my desire to believe in that, you know, I would someday be reunited with all these people that I love so dearly. But there was always something that was lacking And it really wasn't until the birth of my oldest daughter when things really changed. When my wife was expecting, we were originally told it was going to be a boy. And so being a pretty active person, you know, I was all planning on, you know, buying footballs and, you know, baseballs, and we're going to teach them how to do all these things and everything else. And then when we found out that it was going to be a girl, I really went into a, a moment of panic. And, you know, my wife and I were talking and she says, you know, what's the problem? You know, the, the baby's healthy and everything else. And I just said, what could I possibly do for a girl? I know nothing about this. And when she was born, I literally turned to God and said, I'm helpless. I have nobody to talk to. My mother's dead. My grandmother's dead. I've got no maternal people to help me with a baby, let alone a daughter. I give this up to you because I got nothing and there's nowhere else I can turn. And that was my God moment because it started coming to me. It came to me with somebody giving me a book and saying, here, you should read this. Somebody saying, hey, you should listen to this person. My neighbors across the street who had two wonderful daughters sitting down and just talking to me about these things. 
and building up my confidence. And so, you know, over time, I took their advice and I listened to them. And that was a real turning point. And I think the big takeaway from that was that during all this time, especially back in the 80s, in the 1980s, when I went through these tragedies, each event drove me deeper and deeper into a, I don't want to say narcissistic, but but a more inward-looking situation. So I buried myself in my work. I buried myself in my companies, working seven days a week, 12, 18-hour days. There was no difference between my personal life and my business life. And, and yes, that did drive some of the success that we had, but it also, you know, leaves a, a good portion of your life empty. And I think the idea that all of a sudden, instead of burying myself into something to escape and turning around and saying, no, I'm not going to bury myself. I'm going to open myself up and, and I'm going to ask you for help instead of trying to be self-determinant and self-sufficient. That was the big change. And after that happened, I went back and I looked back in different periods of my life. And, and I can tell you there was a number of times where I believe God opened a door for me. And I looked in that entranceway and I just kept walking by. And one of the wonderful things about God is that he didn't say, okay, well, have it your way. He kept opening another door and opening another door and opening another door. And I honestly believe the birth of my daughter was the door that I finally walked in. And it's been life-changing ever since that. Yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. How would you respond to somebody, be it a business owner, an entrepreneur, or just an everyday human being that questions God because bad things happen in their life? I mean, you look back at your life, the the loss of all of those people in a short amount of time. Boy, some people never recover from that. Some people have professional devastation, personal devastation. I think it's one thing to say you believe. It's one thing to talk to God, pray to God when things are going well. It's a totally another thing to do that when it seems like your world has fallen apart. So if somebody's world is caving around them today, if, if they're just carrying a very heavy burden right now, and they're saying, well, if God loved me, he wouldn't do this to me. If there was a God, why is he allowing all this pain to happen in my life? How would you respond to somebody that said those types of things? Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, I would say, read the Old Testament, and you'll see these things happening all the time. And... It's not the event that happens, it's how we react to them. And, you know, God doesn't sit there and say, boy, you know what, today I think I'm going to make Paul Newberger's life miserable. But Paul, what he is saying is, if I make Paul Newberger's life miserable, I hope Paul comes to me. And so I recommend every morning getting up and just going down a thank you list. Because even in the worst of times, even in business bankruptcies, even in the death of a loved one, you still have things that you can be thankful for. And when you start putting that list together, you start realizing that you're not alone, that you're still being loved, you're still being cared for. And these events are opportunities for you to be comforted. How does your faith dictate how you interact with your 
clients. I know there's not like a spiritual run and then when you walk into the office, you punch the clock and you put on your secular hat and then vice versa. When you leave the office, I know it's just, it's who you are. It's a part of your fabric and that's part of the reason why people love you as much as they do. But how does your belief in God and your faith, how does that guide your day-to-day interactions with your clients? Well, first and foremost, I truly believe that my purpose is in the service to these people. So when I meet a new client, when I meet a new prospect, I don't look at them as a, you know, what's in this for me? How much money am I going to get out of this? The first thing I do is I recognize that regardless of their warts, regardless of their views, regardless of where they're coming from, in the eyes of Jesus, they are perfect. That's why he died for them. And so I need to look at them the same way. And I really approach it as, you know, how can I help you? How can I serve you? How can I make you feel better? One of the things that when we first bought Summit, Summit was was very investment management driven, meaning that, you know, we had the business built on, hey, we've got these great portfolios and you should just invest your money in these portfolios and in 10 years you'll have this much more money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that is such a small piece of what people need. And what I realized in having conversations with people is that the investments are the last things you need to talk about. The first things you need to talk about is who these people are and what are their goals, what are their ambitions, what are their dreams, what are their wishes. And then looking at their situation, what have they done well, what have they not done well, and putting together a financial picture of them so that we can have a sound, reasonable conversation. Some people come to me and they're very worried that they'll never be able to retire. And so we take away the emotions and we try to, you know, again, do the same thing that that we've realized is we try to bring order and through order bring comfort and through comfort bring peace to these people so that we can have sound, rational conversations and that we can make investing decisions that are based in truth and based in fact and based in data as opposed to based in emotions. So, you know, if you come to me and you say, I've only got this much and I got to make 200% over the next two years or I'm going to be in a bad situation, you know, we start with, wait a minute, let's take a look at what your situation is now. Because unless you win that lottery ticket or unless you, you know, sell a business, which you don't have, you're not going to make 200% over the next two years. So instead of chasing money, let's chase your life. Let's chase your checkbook. Let's chase, you know, the things that you can actually have control over. And then let's then put together a pathway to get you where you want to go. Now, just like, you know, a dad, I might tell you, it's not going to happen in two years. I know you want to retire in two years, but I'm going to tell you, you're not ready until four, you know, and I can't do anything about the past, but I certainly can take care of, you know, making sure that you're on a better path for the future. And so, you know, you look at them as people and you look at them as brothers and sisters and children that you want to elevate 
just as you've been elevated in the past by the people that have come into your life. So unless somebody listening to this podcast has been living under a rock for the past several years, they or several months, I should say, they know that we recently had a presidential election in this country, and there's been a bit of a transfer of power from a Republican administration to a Democrat one, and outside of a tie in the Senate, it's almost universally Democrat-controlled in Washington. We can keep this answer nonpartisan if we can, but as somebody who is a finance expert and also somebody who works very closely with business executives, entrepreneurs, what should we expect over the next couple of years with respect to the markets and the financial situation in light of this transition of power? You know, it's funny. A good friend of mine actually did a post yesterday exactly about that. And somebody asked them the question with this new administration, what should we do with our stocks? And his reply, and and I have a lot of respect for this guy. we communicate back and forth. We share different ideas. He's written a book and I've plugged it a couple of times in my client letters because he's just a great person. And he said exactly what I would say, you know, don't do anything. He went back and he looked at stock markets under Republicans, under Democrats, under Republican president with Democrat Congress, under Democrat presidents with Republican Congresses. And there is absolutely no pattern one way or the other in terms of when the market's going to go up, when the market's going to go down based on who's in power in Washington. Right now, and I just issued a client letter, which will be on our website within the next couple days, you can look at all the situations And you can see that even in a bad economy, so I went all the way back to the Great Depression with FDR, and I showed that from the beginning of his term to the end of his term, the stock market overall was up. Now, there was volatility, there were ups and downs, and, you know, better opportunities to buy, better opportunities to sell. But if you had just bought and held from the beginning of his term to the end, in the middle of what many people would argue is the worst depression that we've seen in the history of this country, you ended up with more money at the end of his term than you had at the, at the beginning. So a lot of it is more looking at a more micro level and saying, okay, based on what this administration is doing, based on what the policies are, based on what the rest of the world's doing and looking at, are there going to be some sectors that do better now that didn't do as well under the last administration, are there some sectors that are going to do worse than they did before? Right now, we've got very, very low interest rates. So back when my parents retired, you could cash out all your stocks, buy treasury, buy 10-year treasuries for 7 8%, and count on that money coming in every year. Well, now those 10-year treasuries are yielding less than 2%, which isn't even going to keep up with inflation. So now you've got other dynamics that are impacting it. And one of the things that I pointed out is that very often the economy and the market go in two different directions. So we can have a very, very flat economy with very low growth, and we can have a booming stock market just because even in a bad economy, people are still making money. People are still getting raises. People are still creating businesses. People are still selling their businesses. And 
once they get those checks, the money's got to go somewhere. So it's either going to go to discretionary spending where, you know, I'm going to go and I'm going to get a new car, I'm going to buy a new house, I'm going to, you know, do something, or it's going to go into savings and investment. And so what we try to do is we try to identify where is the money best likely to be treated because, you know, over history, regardless of administration, regardless of wars, regardless of famine, regardless of anything else, money always flows to the area where it's treated the best. And if you can identify those areas, then you're going to be, you know, okay. This is a rather long list, Ron Chandler, but there's a number of things that I admire about you. (laughs) And right at the top of the list is the priority that you put on community service, you know, not just donating to nonprofits, but being involved, volunteering, serving on boards, whatever the case may be. And when you mentioned that a little bit earlier, it reminded me of a story that my pastor told me once, and and he said that he learned philanthropy from his father, who also was a pastor. So money was never in overwhelming, abundant supply in this person's house, but they always made it a priority to donate. And what he said was every time his father brought home a paycheck, he would always allocate a certain percentage of that paycheck first to go to nonprofits and whatever was left thereafter, that's what they spent as a family household. And I think a lot of times families, individuals today have that backwards. That doesn't mean right or wrong. It's just different. It's I'm going to, we're going to pay the groceries first. I'm going to pay the car bill first. I'm going to take care of my entertainment first. And then if I have any money left over, I'll invest it in nonprofits. Why is proactively making it a priority to support the community a good practice, whether you're a wash in cash or barely making ends meet? Well, I think you kind of answered it, but you did it in a backhanded way. Everybody is going to do better if the entire community is doing better. So if we've got a portion of the community that is doing very, very well and a portion that's not, we're not going to end up with the best results. And this year, you know, one of the things that really jumped out from this whole COVID pandemic reaction that we had was that we had a recovery that some people call it K-shape. I don't understand where the K comes from. But essentially, over this past year, if you had a job where you could work from home, work remotely, if you had a job that was deemed essential by the powers that be, you did okay, and in some cases you did very well. You know, companies like Amazon just completely, you know, created, you know, so much wealth for their shareholders just because of the amazing growth. Because now, instead of going shopping, people just got online and they you know, bought and bought and bought. And so, you know, the delivery services where now on the other hand, the small mom and pop shops who were not deemed essential, you know, they went out of business. I living in California, I can tell you that two of my favorite restaurants and they were just small, you know, little burger places, they didn't have they didn't they couldn't survive a year without revenue. They weren't able to operate, you know, on a enough scale with the takeout and delivery. And so, you know, they closed up shop. So, you know, we had 
the top you know, group over here that were either essential or could work from home, they, in a lot of cases, became wealthier than, than they were at the beginning of the year. And then you've got a whole other group of people who are really hurting. And so, you know, our approach has been to take a look at, you know, what we're doing and what we have and ask the first question, okay, who needs our help and who can we help? And so, you know, we, over this past year, we gave more money to local food banks than we had in the past. We donated to the school so that kids could get Chromebooks so that they could do the online learning. You know, we made donations that that we thought would make a more immediate impact, you know, on the community at large. Because, as I I said, when everybody's doing better, the economy's doing better. And when the economy's doing better, then, you know, we're all going to be in a much, you know, better place. And it doesn't matter what you're doing and what your job is and what your paycheck is. When that check comes in, there's always going to be somebody who's not doing as well as you. And so the first question is, you know, is there something I can do to help them? And what I have found is that when you are proactively doing that, it does come back to you. And it comes back to you in an amazing number of ways. Well, Ron, you asking the question, what can I do to help them? How can I help? Has paid dividends in your life personally and professionally. And I would say without any ambiguity or uncertainty, it has also paid dividends today. You have certainly helped our audience I know speaking for myself, I mean, I always learn something new when I'm talking to you, but we really do appreciate your sharing your expertise with us, your wisdom with us. Thank you for inspiring us on a variety of levels and keep doing the the good work that you're doing, my friend, because you are touching a lot of lives in the process. Ron Chandler, president of Summit Investment Management. It was a blessing to spend some time with you today, my friend. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure and thank you for the invitation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Known with Paul M. Newberger. If you like our show and want to know more, check us out at stargroup.com. That's S-T-A-R-R-Group.com slash podcast. We're also available on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts.